0: Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we're returning to the Tectonic stage at this year's FT Weekend Festival for a debate on the future of work.
1: Either we will see everybody adjust in their lifestyles or we will see large-scale inequality At the moment, all the lessons of history, to me, suggest that actually the way that we're going to be going is large-scale inequality. That
0: was Mike Waldridge, Professor of Computer Science at Oxford University. He took part in a debate chaired by my colleague Medumita Merger about what happens when robots can do most of the work humans do. They were joined on stage by Callum Chase of the Economic Singularity Club and Catherine Parsons, founder of Decoded.
2: Let's start with you, Callum. Tell us why you think robots are gonna take over and we're gonna have no jobs left.
3: Good afternoon. You're all very clever. I know that because you read the FT. So you know that the smartphone in your pocket has more compute power than NASA had when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. And that is true, but it's out of date. Thanks to the exponential growth in the power of our computers, they get twice as powerful every 18 months, more or less. A good toaster now has more compute power than NASA had in 1969. Which makes you think how incredibly brave those astronauts were to go into space with the intelligence of a toaster. <laughs> this exponential growth in the power of computers is known as Moore's law and there are people who will tell you that Moore's law is dead or dying. And it's not true. There is plenty more more. It's just evolving, which is what it's already done. And I think that in the medium term, and I think 25, 35 years, it's going to do what a lot of people talk about and then immediately deny, which is that robots are gonna take all our jobs, automation. Now, automation, of course, is not new. In 1800, 80% of all Americans who worked worked on farms. And in 1900, that number went down to about 40%, and now it's down to around 1%. In the long run, that wasn't a massive problem for humans, because when the machines took our muscle jobs, we had something else to offer. We had our cognitive abilities. But it was a big problem for the horse. The horse had great muscle power and nothing else. So when the machines took the horse's muscle jobs, the horses were unemployed. In 1915, there were 21.5 million horses working in America. 1915 turned out to be peak horse, and there are now 2 million horses in America. That is really severe technological unemployment. Past rounds of automation have almost all been mechanization. We now have a new type of automation which is cognitive automation. At the moment, in all of the states marked green in this map, the most common job description is truck driver. But it won't be for long. Sometime in the next 10 years, probably in the next five years, self-driving vehicles are going to be ready for prime time. And when they are, they will sweep across the commercial fleet, not necessarily the private fleet, but the commercial fleet very quickly because human drivers contribute about half of the cost of the vehicle they operate. And there are about five million professional drivers in America and about a million here. What are they going to do next? The thing is, machines have some unfair advantages which apply to most of our jobs. They don't get tired, they don't get sick, they don't fall out with each other, they don't even go to sleep. But most important of all, They're getting twice as capable every 18 months, and we're not. Now, in the short term, 10 years, 15 years, I do not think this will cause technological unemployment. Instead, I think what will happen is there'll be a lot more churn. We're all going to have to get used to changing our jobs, and in fact, our entire careers more and more often. So it's great that we've got Catherine to help us do that. But in the longer term, the medium term, I think we do have to take seriously the possibility that we're going to have massive widespread technological unemployment because machines will do pretty much everything that we can do for money cheaper better and faster than us. Now a lot of people probably most people pour scorn on this idea but I think a lot of this disagreement comes down to a matter of timing. I think the skeptics about technological unemployment are really just not thinking far enough into the future and possibly not taking seriously the incredible power of exponential growth. So. If we are going to have to figure out how to pay for a world in which there are no jobs, what do we do? Unfortunately, I do not think the answer is the currently fashionable in the mainstream idea of universal basic income because the little word in the middle gives away the fact that that is really just a way to make everybody poor. And instead what we have to do is make everybody rich. And this is going to sound really bizarre. I think there is a way to do that and I think it is called the abundance economy, also known as the Star Trek economy in which we make all the goods and services that you need for a very, very good standard of living, we make them nearly free. I think if we can do that, we can make the world of our children and our grandchildren really wonderful. But we do have to start taking technological unemployment seriously as a possibility.
2: Thanks, Callum. Michael, can you tell us whether you agree with Callum and you think AI is at a position where it can do everything that we all can, cheaper, faster, and better?
1: I certainly agree with much of what you said, Callum, and I think most of the AI community that I work with on a daily basis would definitely agree with most of it. So first, let me just say a little bit about what AI is. Everybody thinks they know something about AI because they watch TV and they read books and movies. And the problem is that AI is not like the AI that you see in movies. I mean, the AI that we see in movies is about having robot servants and robot butlers and the night Rider cars and all that kind of stuff. The reality of AI is that that kind of AI, which is called general AI, is nowhere on the horizons. The idea of having machines that are conscious, sentient, have the full range of sort of capabilities that people have, that's not going to happen anytime soon. If it happens at all, and there is a debate about whether it will happen at all, it's in the distant future. It's not something that people in this room are likely to be concerned about. The advances that we've seen in AI, which are real, are focused on getting AI to do very, very narrow things So some examples. Facial recognition. It's a fact, it's a scientific fact. Computers are better at recognising faces in pictures than people are. The implications of that and what you can do with that, you can do some scary things with it, but you can also do an enormous number of beneficial things with it. The implications of that kind of thing are enormous. Automated translation. Just 20 years ago, there was no prospect of practically usable automated translation. Nobody thought it was going to happen anytime soon, and now it's completely mundane. We do it every time we go on holiday. I was in Shanghai two weeks ago. I used it to tell me how to adjust the air conditioner in my room. And it didn't do a perfect job, but it did a job that completely transformed my experience there. So AI is about getting computers to do tiny, narrow little things, like driving cars, which is interesting because it's something that we think is trivial, but actually turns out to be terribly, terribly difficult for computers to get them to do. It's about getting computers to do those tiny, narrow, little tasks. So that's what AI is. It's about getting machines to do things which currently require brains. So the big question, is the future going to be one big gap year? The short answer to that is I fear not. The first thing to say is that the debate that we're having now about how AI and other technologies, because AI is just one of a whole range of emerging technologies, how they're going to change the nature of work and society has exactly the same tone of the debate that went on at the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s when the advent of the microprocessor And the microprocessor is the chip in the heart of your computer. And before microprocessors were developed, a computer occupied an entire room and cost millions of pounds. After that, they were on desks, then they became laptops, and now you've got a supercomputer in your pocket. And that's all possible because of the microprocessor. At the end of the 70s, everybody realised that there was going to be a huge range of automation of tasks. And the biggest opportunities there were in factories. And there was enormous fear at the time about the huge swathes of unemployment which would follow. And there were serious debates at the time about the idea that we would all be working a three-day week and we would use all that leisure time that that freed up to go to, I don't know, the FT Festival or read Plato or do Shakespeare plays or something. And people seriously believed that that was a possibility. Why didn't it happen? that way. Certainly, the microprocessor delivered enormous economic benefits, but that didn't translate into more leisure time for all of us. Why not? There's a whole bunch of reasons. One of the most important is that standards of living did not stay the same. We consumed more. We went on more holidays. We had fancier cars. We wanted Apple Watches and CD players and tablet computers. And to pay for all that stuff, we had to work. If we were all prepared to have Considerably simpler standards of living, then technology can free up our time. But that's, depending on your point of view, either not human nature or evil capitalist society steers us into consuming more. We could have a debate about whether that's the case. I'm a skeptic about universal basic income. I don't really believe that universal basic income on a large scale and in the way that it's envisaged is going to happen anytime soon. Put simply, I can't imagine people voting for it. The people that have jobs will resent people that don't have jobs, and that's the nature of human society. I think we would have to see economic difficulties on a completely unprecedented scale before there was any kind of political will to make universal basic income happen. But also, to make it feasible, AI and all these other technologies would have to deliver economic benefits that I just don't really see them delivering on the scale that would be necessary. So here's a question, so I looked up on the train on the way here, what's the world population today? So it's obviously there's some uncertainty, but it's about 7.7 to 8 billion people. And at some point in the next couple of decades, it will hit, let's say, 10 billion people. So here is my question to you. Can the world sustain 10 billion people at Hampstead lifestyles or Californian middle-class lifestyles? Could the world feasibly support that number of people with those lifestyles? Now, we could sit down and work through the sums, but I think the answer is just no. It is not feasible for the world to support that scale of population at that standard of living. The inevitable consequence for that, to me, is either the world has to adjust its lifestyle has to adjust to a simpler way of living. I think, for example, we see some signs of this, right? I think in 20 years' time the idea of weekend city breaks flying off to Barcelona start to seem a little bit implausible because there is a coming movement that actually that is just not a sustainable thing to do. But either we will see everybody adjust in their lifestyles or we will see large-scale inequality. At the moment, all the lessons of history to me suggest that actually the way that we're going to be going is large scale inequality. So the task for us is to try to reduce that inequality as much as possible.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to
1: do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com,
2: code LISTEN.
1: And to try to ensure that the society we construct is a fair and a reasonable one.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much. So I think the minimal agreement here between the two of you is there are certain tasks, narrow tasks within AI that are going to replace some forms of work and I think that's where Catherine comes in because what Catherine does is try and upskill humans all of us here today to make us relevant for this future. So why don't you jump in and tell us what are the jobs we think are not going to be relevant anymore and how are you working with corporate Britain and the rest of the world to make us more relevant for this inevitability?
4: So, Maddie, you know that since we launched, we started saying that we could teach anyone how to code in a single day. And today we're actually reskilling and upskilling people in all sorts of skills like cybersecurity and data analytics. We're working with people who have never learned this stuff before, and we get a lot of insight into how businesses all across the world are grappling with this huge technological change. And there has been huge technological change, but when you actually open the door of most businesses globally, the most advanced technology that's been deployed in those businesses was invented in the 1980s. It's Excel spreadsheets. You know, we talk about AI, we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, but in reality, the world of business is not being operated like that. And when you look at the reasons why, really, it's about the fact that there's been so much innovation when it comes to technology, but it's the squishy bits, (laughs) us, the human beings which essentially have not evolved and changed and fundamentally our education system hasn't changed so we've been working with a lot of adults at looking at who can we upskill and who can we reskill for the future of work the future of work report came out 2014 it predicted that 50% of jobs could be easily replaced by machines in the next 10 years and I'd say that there's a huge amount of accuracy in that but what was overlooked was what percentage of those people can be upskilled and reskilled into workers of the future whatever that may be and there's a huge assumption that people over the age of 18 can't upskill or reskill or reinvent their careers and that's something that i passionately do not believe we've been working with people over the age of 18 18 up to 70 years old and looking at the skills transformation that happens only last year we were working with one learner in the center of that 50% to be replaced by machines quota working in insurance in his 50s, pen and paper, couldn't even really operate an Excel spreadsheet. Within three months, he would managed to upskill, reskill, re-qualify, and get a job in their data analytics team. Transformation of skills is possible. And the way that we're going to do that is by fundamentally rethinking our education system and lifelong learning. So for me, I want to see real change at a government level in terms of how are we going to fund people's lifelong learning careers. I don't think this is about a gap year. I don't think we're all going to be traveling around the world. But I do think potentially we should be looking at four to eight hours per week of learning and learning on the job, in the job. What should we be learning? So the way that we do it with our learners is it's not taking people out of the workplace. This is on-the-job learning, working with your own individual challenges, your own business challenges. But the most important thing is that the CEO is engaged in the learning agenda because that sends a message to the entire organisation that you have permission to learn. And so when the permission to learn agenda is set, people feel that they can upskill and reskill for up to four hours a week. And it's practical. They're actually learning practical skills that they can apply to the real challenges of the organisation. There are very interesting governments globally looking at how they fund things like this. Singapore have a skills credit that any individual can pull on, individually, £1,000 to £5,000, to invest in their own lifelong learning. What more can we be doing in the UK to encourage people to do that?
2: So if we're talking about the jobs that are being lost and new skills... Can one of you talk about what you think are jobs that are going to be done really well by AI, even AI we have today or maybe in five to ten years, and what role humans can play once that reality is here?
1: I can say a little bit about that. So there's a quote from a former head of research at Baidu in China, which is a very, very large search engine company in China, a huge tech company. And he said, any decision that a human can make in one second, we can automate with AI. And at first sight, well, one second doesn't sound very long, but I just a huge number of things that people do can just be directly automated by computer. And in particular, the new wave, the new thing, the reason that driverless cars have become possible is that the breakthroughs in AI are to do mostly with building AI that can cope with perception can understand what's going on in its environment around it because all of the problems in driverless cars to do with knowing what's around you what's in your environment that that's a pedestrian that that's a car and so on making sense of all of that information so what does that mean I think The driverless car revolution, I mean it's had a few hiccups recently and I think people have retrenched on their predictions about when it's going to happen, but it is completely inevitable in the same way that the aircraft revolution was inevitable after Kitty Hawk in 1903. So driverless cars will happen. If your job just involves driving a car around a city like London or routine driving on a motorway from one depot to another, your job will go. We could debate about timescales, but it will go. If your job is part of a call center, for example, where essentially you're just answering the phone and following a script without any real human judgment, then your job will go. Because the part of your brain that's actually being used is really just understanding the words that are being said to you. We'll be able to automate that, certainly within the next two decades or so. So all of those kinds of jobs, those kind of scripted jobs, will go. The jobs that are gonna be most resistant are exactly the squishy jobs, I think. It's the jobs which involve human skills. So we hear a lot about AI in medicine, for example. It's a fact, computers can recognize tumors on X-rays better than people can. But that's not all a doctor does when you meet with your GP and you talk to your doctor about your chest pains or the fact that you can't sleep at night. They look at you in the eye. They're a human being and they use all their experience from the human world to make judgments about you. And they may not be able to tell you exactly how they do it, but boy, they definitely do it. We don't have a clue how to automate that kind of stuff. So doctors, which is the squishiest of all squishy professions, I think, their jobs are going to be completely safe. We could go on. I mean, there have been a number of studies. There was a famous study in 2013 from Oxford from some colleagues which has been questioned a lot, and their headline prediction was 47% of jobs in the United States were going to be amenable to automation. And one of my colleagues, Carl Frey, he was really startled to see some video of a demonstration in the United States about unemployment. And they're holding a placard saying 47 <laughs> percent My God, that was my report. But you can look at that report and you can see the kind of jobs that are resistant. But any jobs that involve human skills, human creativity, those jobs are going to be really safe for the time being. Interestingly, the other class of jobs are jobs which involve dexterity. We don't have robot hands that are remotely as good as human hands. And the class of jobs which involve those includes things that you perhaps wouldn't expect, like electricians, carpenters, all those guys are gonna be completely safe for the foreseeable future. We won't be able to automate all of those kinds of jobs.
2: Callum, do you disagree in that? Do you think that if we take a 30 year view, it's gonna be more widespread?
3: Yeah, I do. I think Michael's being unfair on his own profession. I think he's been too humble. Driving a car is not actually a trivial activity. And I know this because I've got an 18 year old son who's learning to drive. And when I'm in the passenger seat, it's more than a little nerve wracking. I think it's unbelievably impressive that computers, which are pretty basic now, are able to drive a car. You know, we don't let humans do that until they're adults. And machines are going to get much, much more impressive, much more capable than they are now. Because of this exponential growth, the machines we have in 10 years' time will be well over 100 times more capable than the ones we have now. In 20 years' time, they'll be 8,000 times more capable. In 30 years' time, they will be a million times more capable. To me, it's implausible that the machines then, which, by the way, will then be well short of artificial general intelligence and superintelligence. I think we need to separate those two things. They're still going to be narrow AI, artificial narrow intelligence. I think they will take over almost all the jobs that we currently do.
2: Including what we're calling now squishy the squishy jobs. jobs. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, which is why we'll have a gap here. So the squishy jobs, Let's look at the squishy jobs. In Japan, they don't go in for much immigration. They're quite technophile, and they're at the bow wave of the greying of society. They don't have enough people to look after their elderly population. So more and more, robots are looking after their elderly population. And if you've seen Robot and Frank, which is a great movie, you'll know what comes next. The older people like being looked after by the robots, perhaps because you can tell a robot the same joke a hundred times a day and it doesn't (laughs) care. Actually, when people do squishy jobs, to be quite honest, they provide a pretense of care. They provide a simulacrum of care. And very occasionally, they provide real care. But if they provide real care to every single patient or client who comes past them, they will burn out and have a neurotic breakdown within five minutes. So machines can provide a simulacrum of care, and it turns out they're quite good at it. They're better than a lot of humans, and the recipients like it. So again, I think the disagreement here is about timescales. I think if you take exponential growth seriously and project it far enough into the future, it is a distinct possibility that they will get to be so good that they can do all the things that we can do for money, which leaves a lot else. You know, humans don't just do things for money. We do a lot of other things as well, which I think are more valuable, But I think the machines will do most of the things that we do for money. And at that point, we will hopefully be in gap year rather than a dystopian, sort of UBI-ridden, poverty-stricken horror show. In the meantime, we just need to do lots of retraining, and that's what we've got Catherine for.
4: I think there's a lot in timescales, definitely. They predicted in 1960s, there were a lot of academic reports produced on automation and its impact on different jobs and different industries. This is not the first time we've been talking about this, And they predicted that we were going to have robo-doctors and that we weren't going to read physical newspapers anymore. We were going to get digital newspapers. But the timelines were totally off. We were going to have robo-doctors apparently in 1960, and we weren't going to have digital newspapers at least for another five years. What's super interesting about these reports is just not predicting things like the smartphone. Mm. There was no World Wide Web. So for us, it's really about how do we create an environment of education that we can actually produce the individuals and the environments with the skills to create the innovations of the future?
2: So just to kind of wrap up here, we started the discussion with horses. And I read a paper which asks, will humans go the way of horses? This is by Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfs. And and there they do conclude that interpersonal skills that humans possess and the creativity and ideation that we bring is what currently sets us apart from robots but also they quote from a nasa paper that man is the lowest cost 150 pound non-linear all-purpose computer system which can be mass-produced by unskilled labor <laughs> easy you for yourself easy yeah so if for any other reason other than that hopefully we'll still be around and still be useful and cheap to do some labor in the future
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.